Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, team. I love that song. Well, we're glad you're here today. Thank you for coming. And uh, thank you, Francois, for teaching last week. Didn't he do a great job? And mothers, thank you. Elizabeth and I were doing ministry in California. California is a place I never want to go. But you know what? There are some fantastic Christians out in California. I'm amazed. It's fantastic out there. There are people that are trying to change the tide of California, and it's a tough tide to change. But there are fine people out there. When you're praying for people, pray for California, because there are fine believers out there that are trying to make a difference in that tough place as we are trying to make a difference here in South Florida. But it's good to be back and thank you for uh, being a part today. We'll have a couple of announcements at the end, but I wanna get right into uh, the word today and we're gonna begin a subject and a series all through the summer. So if you come and go and you're on vacation or whatever you are, that's fine because each week we'll stand alone a passage of scripture in the book of Ephesians. And we're calling it known. You see it there, known. It's what can we know about God and what has he told us about himself? And the book of Ephesians is very clear about that. And we're going to be looking at that over the summer. And even when we're on vacation, others will be preaching. So we'll be teaching through the entire book, hopefully end by Labor Day in the sixth chapter of it. Ephesians has two parts to it. It's pretty simple. Part one is chapters one, two, and three. That's God's part. We learn a lot about God, what he's doing, why he's doing it, how he's doing it, how he did it in the past, how he's doing it in the future, what he's doing in the world, what he's doing in our lives, kind of the whole part about God. The second portion of the book is about us. It starts out in chapter four, it says, now you should walk this way. So after we learn in chapters one, two, and three, all about God, how do we respond to that? And that's chapters four, five, and six. We won't be in chapters four, five, and six till the middle of the summer. So we're gonna learn about God over these next weeks of time. But I wanna start by saying this, that there are many paradoxes in the Bible. A paradox is something, when you put it together, it doesn't quite fit in our thinking, just doesn't quite, when you juxtapose it together, it just doesn't fit together. What do I mean by that? Um, Something as simple as God says he's chosen us, but he's given us the free will to choose him. That is like huge. And depending which side of that you're on, there's theological discussions, but there is a paradox there. The Bible says we're dependent on God. The Bible says we are independent from God. See the paradox? There's so many of these. And part of the paradoxes is one that is in this book and what I wanna introduce. So today is an introduction of the book of Ephesians. We're gonna talk about it a little bit. And that is this that God goes ahead of us, but we have personal responsibility. God goes ahead of us, he does the work, but we still have responsibility. So there are some people who go, it's all about God, 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 that's good, and some people go, it's all about me, 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 and that's okay too, but we need to understand 
it's both. Write down 2 Kings chapter 7. Don't have to look at it. It's a long chapter. I want to take this back to the Old Testament. In in 2 Kings chapter 7, we're deep in the narrative of the Old Testament in a part of the Bible you don't spend a lot of time on. It's the part where the kingdoms were divided. You had Judah down here with Jerusalem. You had Israel up here with Samaria. And the two kingdoms had been separated. And Syria had come down to take Israel, that's the northern tribes, away, and they took captive the city of Samaria. In other words, they were besieging it. They hadn't gone into the city, they had surrounded it, and the way a lot of armies used to take over capital cities is, they wouldn't go in and kill everybody and everybody be killed and all the rest. They would just come around it and stop the food supply. So it might take a month, two months, three months, six months, but at some time, the people in there would either give up and become slaves or actually die of starvation, one or the other. So the Syrians had besieged Samaria and there was this long waiting game of it. Second Kings 7 tells us there were four very poor sick people at the gate of Samaria. They were lepers, they had leprosy. You may not know this, but if you had leprosy, you were not allowed to go into the city. You were not allowed to be a part of your family or anything because they believed at that time that it was contracted just by being near, by the air and different things. So these people were set out. These four men, they're dying right at the edge of the city. They're outside the city gates, but they're not being taken captive because who wants people with leprosy? So they're kind of not in and they're not out. They're dying at the gate. So they decide, they go, you know, we're dying here. They're not letting us in. We might as well go over to the Syrians and see if they will give us some bread. So late one afternoon, it's all in 2 Kings chapter 7, they walk over to the camp of the Syrians. Now it's all the way around. They figured out where the captain and the generals were. They walked towards that. And when they got there, nobody was there. It was empty. They go into the first tent. There's food, there's drink. There's gold, there's armaments. They start eating and they get full. They start putting in their pockets of the robes, all the stuff. They go to tent number two, no one's there. They eat, 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 and they put all the stuff there and they're just taking all the goods from these captors who have left. And then they said in verse nine, they said, we need to go and tell the people that go and tell the people means go back to Samaria and tell the people what God has done with their captors. It's actually the word, if I could use an old-fashioned word, testify. We need to testify of what God went ahead and did, and we need to tell the people that he did it. And so they went back and told everybody because they understood the responsibility they had. They benefited from what God did, but they also had a responsibility to do something about it. That theme of God goes ahead, but we have a responsibility is throughout the Bible. And it is particularly in the book of Acts and in the book of Ephesians where this is so important. So God goes ahead and we have a responsibility to do something about it. 
So now, let me give you a couple of examples of this. I want to give you two examples that were a part of now, we're back in the New Testament, part of Paul. Number one, one of the things Paul did as a responsibility is he prayed for the people. If you want to know what you need to be doing right now is you need to be praying for those who don't know Jesus. We can argue about them. We can bemoan the fact that we're going to hell in a handbasket in this country and all the rest. And all that's true. But are we praying for these people? These people we're complaining about, whether it's our next door neighbor or the politicians or the actors and actresses or whomever it may be, we're complaining about all this. But are we praying for them? And in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 1, another book, that Paul was a part of and wrote, he said, we must pray for people. People, we need to understand that when he said this, nobody were Christians around him. It's easy to pray if we lived in the Bible Belt or lived somewhere where everybody were Christians or at least Christianly, it's easy to pray. I pray for you, these two pray for me, I pray for you, you pray for me, it's easy. It's easy in church, but when you get out of church, how easy is it? that we want to pray. And what he's saying is pray for people who are not followers. Yes, we pray for people who are followers and their problems and their issues and their children and all of that, of course. But are we praying for the people who are not followers? And Paul tells us we have to testify. And before we testify, we need to pray for the people. And so I ask you, are you praying for people? That's why I've asked you, and if you haven't done it, to put a couple of names in the front of your Bible. Who are the two or three people you're praying for every single day, every single week, who are not followers of Jesus Christ? Is there anyone you're praying for? I know there are people you're complaining about. I've got my complaint list too, and it's longer than two or three. So I can complain, but am I praying? And here's the point, pray for people. Why? Elizabeth comes from a large family. You've heard her talk about it. You've heard me talk about it. Half her family goes to this church, and it's just an enormous Lebanese family from Jamaica. And they're believers, and it's a great Christian family. But it wasn't always that so. A generation ago, her aunt, and the aunt of 20 or 30 people in this room, got a divorce, and back then, divorce was not good. Her husband abandoned her and her four children, and she was poor, she's on the island of Jamaica, and she's being ostracized by the Lebanese community. And she came to Christ. I don't know how she came to Christ, but she came to Christ. And that poor woman, it's interesting, the stories, I've heard her tell them she passed away a few years ago, but I heard her tell them she has four young children, she has bills she can't pay, she would put her bills on her bed every week and say, God, how are you gonna pay for these bills? She'd lay hands on her bills. Talk about laying hands on people. She laid hands on her bills. And somehow, God paid them. She didn't pay him. They got paid somehow through the years. And she would share Christ to her sister and brothers, the other, the generation above my wife. 
and none of them came to Christ. They were all good people, nice people, churchly kind of people, but they never came to Christ. And then about 20 years later, my mother-in-law, she wasn't my mother-in-law then, her mother and father died within six weeks apart. Elizabeth's mother and grandfather died one after the other, six weeks apart. The whole family's grieving, the whole greater family, the whole Lebanese community is grieving. And this lady, who has nothing, who's been testifying for 20 years about how God takes care of her, came over to their home every single night and prayed for them and made coffee for them and showed hospitality to them and just comforted them. And at the end of the grieving, I don't know if it was weeks or months, my mother-in-law-to-be said, I want what she has. For 20 years, she didn't want what she had. But at that point, she said, I want what she had. And my mother-in-law-to-be took her three daughters and herself to her sister-in-law's church. And the four of them became believers that Sunday. That was the beginning of her part of the family coming to Christ. Now, 40 years later, and two and a half or three generations later, Christ came into the family because of a poor, divorced woman who prayed and showed some hospitality to her sister-in-law. You see, you don't have to be the best speaker, you don't have to be the richest, you don't have to have resources. What you have to have is a heart for God and do something about it. And that woman did, and because of it, when I met my future wife, she had just come to Christ about two years before that, when they emigrated to the United States. A beautiful thing. You go, well, if it was 19 years and she had prayed for them for 19 years, she might have go, they're never coming, and might have stopped. My friends never stop, never stop, because you don't know how a whole family can be changed through your ministry, your prayer, and your life. And all it was, was prayer, which is a lot. And the second is hospitality. Hospitality. We go, why aren't you talking about preaching and teaching and giving big lectures? No, that's what people like I do. I do those kind of things. That is just one of dozens of ways. And what we see in the book of Ephesians or in the city of Ephesus the hospitality of one couple, Priscilla and Aquila. In that hospitality, they gave hospitality to Paul. Okay, Paul's the apostle. They gave hospitality to Apollos, who was another great leader, but when they met him, he was not a great leader. And if you read the story in the book of Acts, Apollos was just a normal guy who had a lot of talent, some gifting from God, but he needed help. And they brought him into his home into their home and helped them. And then it even says they moved later on to Rome and established the church in Rome in their house. Can you imagine that? The whole church of Rome, all of you who are Catholics, former Catholics, your church started in the home of one couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And it's so important. 
This past week, one of the great uh, men in our country died on Friday. It was a man named Tim Keller. You may not know Tim Keller, but he was a pastor of a church in uh, New York City, in Manhattan. He started it about 30 years ago. You know, large churches in America many times are from uh, transfer growth. They kind of get large because small churches, you go to a small church, you go, wow, I want to go to that church because it has all these great ministries. So a lot of big churches in the United States are at the expense of small churches. We see this, don't we? I mean, I, have, I bought a new pair of glasses at a big place because it was half the price of the small place, right? I go to the big place because I can get it better, cheaper, quicker. Well, big churches sometimes push down small churches. Not so with Tim Keller. Tim Keller said, I don't want you to come to my church if you go to church. I want you to come to my church if you don't go to church. And his was through conversion growth. Now, I don't know what you think of Tim Keller, but as I look back and you think of the great preachers and pastors of the last 150 years, there's Charles Spurgeon in England, and there was D.L. Moody that I talk about a lot, and there was Billy Sunday, and then there was Billy Graham. How many of you ever heard Billy Graham speak in person? In person, raise your hand. Okay, maybe a third of us. If this was 25 years ago, it would be 100% of us. But we don't do that now because he's long dead. And so, stop. so who are the next? Well, Tim Keller over the last 25 years was kind of that way. He didn't go out and do big seminars and evangelism like Billy Graham, but he wrote the books. And how many of you have read a Tim Keller book? Raise your hand. Yeah, the same number as Billy Graham or more. And what you find is that there are every once in a while people who really take what we believe He took the obvious about our faith and taught us how to teach it and taught us how to learn it. It was interesting. He could take that which was right in front. I'd go, that's the simplest sermon I've ever heard when I'd hear him speak. And I'd go, how does he do that? He just had a way of taking the obvious and then bringing it down so that we could take hold of it. And he did it if you were to ask him. And Elizabeth and I were able to have dinner with him about 12 years ago and talk to him, and it was through prayer, the scriptures, and hospitality. He wanted to do something in New York City that didn't exist, and that was to be hospitable to people. And people came to Christ over and over and more and more because of it. Do we agree with every word he said? No. You don't agree with every word I say. I don't agree with every word you say, but there are people that come and do this. And so I remember when we were together that night 12 years ago, he preached at a little setting we were at. I remember that sermon like it was yesterday. That's how he was able to preach. Not that complex, although he was a big thinker. He was able to bring it down. So what did Paul do? This is important to understand as we get to Ephesus, let's turn now to Acts chapter 20, verse 32, and open the word, and this is Paul. So let me give you a little introduction to this. Paul went on three missionary journeys. So he traveled around, he went on a very small one at first, then he came back, and then he went on a second one and went to larger. Then he went on a third missionary journey, and in the third missionary journey, he went to Ephesus. And that's when he stayed there. Some say two years, some say three years, and he established the church at Ephesus. 
It became his favorite place. He talks about the Ephesians as his favorite place. It was a, um, on the shore, it was a port city, and it's important to understand in the city that it was a Greek city that was now under Roman control. So they, all these cities had gods and goddesses of the city, right? So the, the goddess of Ephesus was a goddess named Artemis, or in Roman mythology, Diana. They had a big temple there. It's still there today. They've excavated. You can walk through the temple of Diana. The Artemis in Greek and Diana in Roman uh, mythology were the goddesses of fertility. Fertility. Now, let me just digress for a moment. This is a total digression, but I love to digress on things. And where did Mary end up? This is a total digression. Where did Mary, the mother of Jesus, end up? If you go throughout Israel, you'll find her burial place everywhere. I I just like, at least Jesus had one burial place and one resurrection. They argue about two places, but at least it's only a couple hundred yards apart. I mean, Mary's burial is over here. Mary's burial is over there. Mary's burial is over there. Everybody wants to have a piece of Mary. Well, I believe Mary went to Ephesus. Why? Because that's where the apostle John ended up. John ended up at Ephesus after the church was established by Paul and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla. John ends up there, and John is responsible for Mary, as we know from the Easter story, right? When Jesus was on the cross, he said, take care of my mother. And John said, yes. And so I believe Mary went what John did, and John ended up in Ephesus. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is the digression. Mary is who? The mother of Jesus. Who is Jesus? God. So we go from Greek mythology that Artemis is the goddess of all fertility. Diana is the goddess of all fertility. Now we have Mary, the mother of God. Do you see it? This became the beginning of the, what I think is a perversion of Mary's role in this story. Mary's role in the story is she was a virgin, she was a good young lady, and God chose her among everyone in the world to bring Jesus into the world. The story goes, though, but she was perfect, she never sinned, she's the mother of God, she is equal to God, and all that. That's where the perversion began. So we as evangelicals are afraid to talk about Mary because she has been perverted. Mary was a great lady. Mary should be um, uh, spoken about. Mary should be talked about. But Mary is no greater than the rest of them. We need to understand that. But that tradition, and I do a whole talk, and I've done it in the past, and I won't do it today on how that tradition got to where it is today. But the fact is, is that's where it began in Ephesus because there was such a perversion of sexuality in Ephesus that when people became Christians, they still attached a positive part of sexuality, which is Mary's the mother of God. So that's, that's the diversion back to Ephesus. So Ephesus is an evil city. It's kind of a port town. Everybody does what they want to do. And in comes Paul. In comes Apollos. In comes Priscilla and Aquila. And they're starting to say that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. 
and nobody liked it. And those people, especially, there's a story in Acts about the goldsmith and the silversmiths who would make the statues of Artemis and of Diana got all mad because you don't need these if you believe in Jesus because you don't want to have a figurine of Jesus. And so they lost their jobs and all kinds of problems. But the city was getting converted. And people were coming to Christ in droves. It was an amazing scene that we see. And at the end, Paul is kicked out of the city, okay, because of all this stuff. He's kicked out of the city. He leaves, and he writes a book back to the city, which is the book we're going to start next week, and you need to start reading it. It takes about 20 minutes to read the entire book, so it's not long, six short pages of it. But now we go to the end of the story, and I just want to read the end of the story before we get to the beginning of the story next week. Paul's about to die. He's on the last leg of a journey to go to Jerusalem where he's going to go on trial, and then he's going to end up in Rome. And the place he wants to visit is Ephesus. He wants to say goodbye to the elders of Ephesus. But he can't go to Ephesus because he'll be killed. So he goes to the town next to it called Miletus. It's in chapter 20, verse 32. And he calls all the elders to Miletus. You know, I'm sure they went ahead and they were doing some cargo changes and the ship was there for a few days. And he calls them all over. And this is what he says to them starting in verse 32. So this is the Apostle Paul telling his best friends, the Ephesian elders, this, the last time he'll ever see them. And now I commend to you, God, and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know these hands ministered to my necessities. He was a tent builder maker. And to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, and if you have a red letter Bible, these are in red letters, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they wept and embraced, and off he went, and off they went, never to see each other again. What are the three things we learn here from this? First of all, and we're going to see this in the book of Ephesus, his presence. Paul was present with people. If you're going to share Christ with people, you have to have relationship with them. Presence is important to develop that relationship. Sure, you can hand a track to somebody you don't know. Obviously, you can talk to somebody on a plane you don't know. Absolutely, that works. But Paul gave us an example that you gotta meet people and talk to people about Jesus. And then he talks about number two, his words. So you have to share, and in your hospitality, if I can use that word in a, in a very large sense, it's not just that you're good and you provide food and you provide shelter, you provide something else. You also provide the words. You are sharing about Jesus Christ. So many people say, um, 
What did uh, Francis of Assisi, which I always misquote, I love Francis of Assisi, but he never really said these words, uh, preach Christ, and if you need to use words, use them, kind of thing. You know, like you can preach Christ without words. No, you can't. You can preach goodness without words. You can preach kindness without words, but you can't preach Jesus without words. You gotta use the words. The words are that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The words are that Jesus came to earth. At the end, yes, we're to be good, and my goodness is good, but it's not enough to be good-mannered. It's not enough that you look at me and go, boy, Bill and Elizabeth are good people. Well, that's nice, but that doesn't mean anything about Jesus. I've gotta tell you about Jesus. I've gotta talk to you about Jesus. And one of the first ways you should do it is to pray for those people, that their hearts would be open so that when you do talk to them about Jesus, their hearts are open to it. Now, sometimes their hearts close. I get it. Elizabeth's family's heart was closed for 20-some years, and then it opened up. You don't know when God will open up the heart of someone. That goes to the whole thing. God has his part. You have your part. God opens hearts. You have your part, let's share Christ with them. Do you see that? There's the words. And then there's the actions. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. This is quite interesting. If I were coming to my best friends and I knew I would never see them again, would I talk about the sin of covetousness? Yeah, I just want you to know, I've loved you all, but I never desired that necklace you wear. And I just want you to know, I never desired your house. And that car you have, I've never desired that car. That's not the last thing I think I would say to somebody. I would talk about that, right? But this is the last thing he says. Why? Have you ever thought about it? Because maybe this is a sin we all have and don't want to admit it. Maybe it is a sin. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's in Moses' Big Ten, God's Big Ten. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's Big Sermon. And now Paul's saying it to his best friends. I didn't covet what you had. Maybe this is a sin that we have. People don't come up to me when they confess their sins. I'm not a priest, but people do confess their sins to me sometimes. I never have somebody come up and confessing that they covet somebody else's things. They confess other sins all these bad things, but they never do that. But maybe, just maybe, we all have this sin in us. Maybe this is a sin that we don't want to admit we have, and that is we want what you have. Whether it's your talent, your ability, your money, your bank account, your children, whatever it may be. And maybe we just don't say it. And he's saying, I just want you to know, I never coveted that stuff. I just loved you. You see, his words and his actions came together when he was with them. Presence, words, actions. But then he says, and this is a beautiful thing, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessity. He's going like this. I worked my own way. And Ephesus was a wealthy city, yet he was a tent maker. So he's just a merchant class, which would have been kind of the lower middle class in that period. He's in the lower middle class. A lot of his parishioners are in the middle and upper middle class. And he's saying, hey, it didn't bother me. I worked and I did what I had to do. But 
We must remember to help the weak and those who have necessity to be ministered to. And remember the words of Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now it's interesting, this is a um, proverb. It's a one sentence proverb. It's, in the, it's a beatitude if you wanna call that, but it's not in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus said this, but it's not in the, new, it's not in the Gospels. So obviously Jesus had said it, but it wasn't written in the Gospels, but he did say this, and so he's repeating it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. If you covet something, it's more blessed to receive than to give, isn't it? But he's saying it's more blessed to give than to receive. What a beautiful thing. I'd say that alone is a big lesson. And as we get into Ephesians next week, we need to understand that. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Began with prayer. He had prayed for them before they ever believed. The last thing he ever did with them was pray with them. My friends, you need to figure out, decide, understand what does it really mean to reach out and to have your responsibility. There is something. God has his responsibility. He goes before us. We have our responsibility. And all of us say, well, I can't sing like these people. I can't teach like this person. I can't do that like that person. You need to figure out what it is that God has gifted you to share the gospel with other people. Because in reality, our job here is to share the gospel. One of the other paradoxes, you know, the paradox of being, you know, dependence and independence, one of them is waiting on God and going and making disciples. I'm supposed to wait, but I'm supposed to go. So which is it? Do I wait or do I go? And it's both. We need to wait upon the Lord for our strength, but we need to go and make disciples in his strength. Wait for his strength and go and make disciples. There is a waiting and a going. Some people go without waiting, and some people wait without going. We need to wait, get the strength, and go. And I think the critical aspect to this is prayer. God, give me a heart for these people and allow me to go to these people. And you need to figure it out because we live in a city that is very much like Ephesus was in so many ways. Don't need God. If they have God, it can be any God. Your God is good as my God, or though we don't need a God. And so we need to reach these people. And so when we look at Ephesians, we needed, I can go, wow, this is pretty current right now. So how does all this work together? I don't know if you know um, a man, he died about uh, 10 years ago. His name was Brennan Manning. Has anybody read Ragamuffin Gospel or anything? A couple of you have. He was not well known, 
Brennan Manning um, was from New York City, Brooklyn, I believe. He had a best friend. He grew up in the 1940s and 50s, and he had a best friend named Ray, and he and Ray were inseparable. Brennan and Ray were inseparable. They bought a car together. They dated together. They went into the army together. They went to boot camp together. They went to the Vietnam War together, and they ended up in a foxhole together. And one night, they were in a foxhole, Brennan and Ray. Brennan was reading something and Ray was eating a chocolate bar. And they're just there quietly trying to get some sleep in a foxhole somewhere in the jungle. And a live grenade came into their foxhole. A live grenade. Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, and fell on the live grenade and it exploded. Ray died, Brennan lived. Wasn't a Christian at that point. He went in to become a priest. He just said, I gotta do something. So he became a priest. And when you become a priest, you're supposed to take a new name. Brennan was not his name, it was another name. And they say, take the name of a saint when you become a priest. And so Brennan Manning took the name of Ray Brennan as his name. That's where the name Brennan Manning comes from. So he took the name of Brennan and has been known, came to the Lord later in life and all the rest, but he's Brenning Manning. One day, he went to visit the mother of Ray, the mother, back in Brooklyn. And they were sipping tea late at night, and Ray looked at, uh, Brennan looked at Ray's mother and said, do you think Ray loved me? Do you think Ray loved me? And she stood up, went over to him, and shook him and said, what else could he have done to show his love? And Brennan just sat there. And it was at that point he realized, kind of in an epiphany or thinking, or he was at the cross of Christ. And he's looking at Christ, wondering, Does he really, does God really love me? People ask that all the time. Does God really know I'm alive? Does God love me? And Mary comes up to him and shakes him and says, what else could Jesus do than what he's doing right now for you? Jesus Christ died on a cross because he loves us. He loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That is true love, my friends. Jesus Christ loves you. And that is a story we need to tell to other people. We don't need to tell them about Christendom. We don't need to tell them about church. We don't need to tell them about our great hospitality. We don't need to tell them about our great children's ministry and our great youth ministry and our great worship band and the great this and the great that. We need to tell them that Jesus Christ loves them because he does. And that is not what people want to hear right now, is it? 
They want to hear about themselves. I want to hear about me. Make me feel better. Well, the reality is this, that the amazing grace is that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross. Jesus Christ loves us. We need to wait till you understand that and then go and make disciples. Let's pray together.